You're listening to an audio sermon from Redemption Church in Olds, Alberta. It is our prayer that through this ministry, we will see lost people saved, saved people matured, and mature people multiplied all to the glory of God. For more information about our church, or to let us know how we can be praying for you, visit us online at www.redemptionolds.com or send us an email at info at redemptionolds.com. Um, the, the Lord building and fulfilling that promise. Um, so that means this morning we're going to skip verse 15 uh, and go right to verse 16 uh, and see the Lord speaking to the woman. Um, next week, I'm excited to say our brother uh, Luke Haida is going to be uh, bringing the word from the Gospel of Luke. Um, and then we'll spend three weeks getting back to chapter, or sorry, verse 15 and, and seeing the, the Gospel in a nutshell through to, through to Christmas Day. And, and since we've come this far, let me just keep uh, painting off into the distance for you a little bit. Um, New Year's Day, um, Kyle Hunter, who is planting Redemption Church in Edmonton, he's going to be here um, bringing God's word. So don't stay up too late uh, New Year's Eve. You'll want to be here for that New Year's Day. Uh, and then historically, um, every year since our church has begun, um, we have started the year um, focusing on prayer just coming back to the basics, the foundation of, of prayer. Um, this year, we're going to lean hard into that. We're going to spend three weeks uh, in a series on prayer called uh, Dependent. And, and that's coming out of a verse I shared a few weeks ago, um, 2 Corinthians 1.9. Paul writes, Indeed, we felt like we had received a sentence of death, but that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. And so we're going to start our year um, reminding ourselves, what does it mean to rely on Christ? What does it mean for us to be dependent on God in prayer? Um, and then after that, finally, we'll get back into Genesis 3, wrap up this section on the curse and, and the it was good, and, uh, and then carry on through, through Genesis. So that's, that's my plan as far out as it reaches, and, and uh, now you know what to expect. Um, and uh, let's, uh, let's now turn our, our focus to um, this morning's passage said Genesis 3, uh, verse 16. As I mentioned, the, the larger section here is often referred to as the curse. Um, these verses, six verses from, from verse 14 down to 19, um, are all about kind of the ripple effect of sin. The ripple effect of sin. Kids, if that's your first uh, fill-in, if you've checked out already. Um, if you've ever been out by the lake, maybe early morning or late after dusk, and there's no one on the lake, and, the, and it just goes glassy smooth, and you can see the reflection of the, the trees or the mountains, the stars, um, it's calm. And imagine then um, someone comes up beside you with a big heavy rock and lobs that rock uh, into the lake. What happens? It, it doesn't just affect the spot where the rock hits, that it certainly does, but those ripples, those waves go out and they disturb eventually the whole lake. It's, it's disrupted and it makes its way outward further and further. And, and so that's the question that kind of hangs in the air uh, at this moment in history. In Genesis 3, Adam and Eve have sinned. Their conscience is provoked. They feel shame and fear. Their relationship between one another is broken. Their relationship between the Lord has been affected. Uh, and the question is, how far is this going to spread? What are the effects of this? Um, how far out will these ripples go? Is it, is it just Adam and Eve, or, or does it have broader effects? Is, is it just their relationship with one another, or does this affect their, their children, their kids, and the rest of the world? 
How contained will this disease of sin be? And as God is explaining the effects of sin, um, first he addresses the serpent, then he addresses Eve and explains how sin is going to affect the woman. And then he addresses Eve, and, or sorry, then he addresses Adam and, and explains how sin is going to affect the man. Now, the, the first effect of sin, the point where the, where the rock hits the water, the, the primary effect of sin is death. That's what God had told them, had warned them. The day you eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you will surely die. And, and in one sense, they did die immediately. There was a spiritual death, a death to their relationship to the Lord. They all of a sudden had put themselves in the path of God's judgment. And the fact that they didn't die physically immediately is God's grace. The reality of death, however, did immediately enter the world and it would never be the same. The entrance of sin and death, the whole world begins to break down. Everything begins to, to fall apart in, in countless ways. And so um, let's have a look at, at 3.16. To the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that it is trustworthy and true. It's reliable, God, that we can uh, come to you um, to understand our world, to understand the, the brokenness and the chaos around us. God, give us eyes to see this morning. Lord, humble us before your word, that we would not stand in judgment over what you have said, but that we would humbly put ourselves under it to walk uh, in the way that you have laid out to understand um, your truth. God, I pray that you'd be with me as I speak. God, that you would be at work, that my words would be true to your word, that if anything I have to say is not faithful to your truth, God, that those words would just not be heard, that they would fall to the ground, um, that your word would be, go forward, and that you would be shaping and forming us as your church this morning. We pray in Jesus' name. Well, as the Lord addresses the woman here, um, addresses Eve, the first thing we see is there will be pain in childbearing. Now, let's set the stage here a little bit. It's significant that God addresses the woman. And, and when he talks to her, he talks about two things, bearing children and having a husband. Bearing children was God's gift to, to Adam and Eve and, and his blessing to both of them, but, but specifically to the, to the woman. It was Eve who had the ability to, to carry it out. Remember, God had said it's not good for man to be alone, and then um, that meant more than just a man needs a wife. That, that was humans need community. We need each other. It's not good for any of us to be alone. Um, and then he provided Eve, and, and Eve in God's wisdom, um, has this amazing ability to produce more little humans. It's really cool. Um, it's amazing. And so Genesis 1.28 says God blessed them. He blessed them. And God said, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Marriage and children are God's blessing. It is good. 
It's a gift for our, our joy and our flourishing from, from the God who created this, this world. There's a movement today um, of women looking down on getting married, having children, put that aside. They, they devalue that in, in favor of something important, something worthwhile, something meaningful, becoming their own established and, and fully realized person, having a, a career and actually making an impact on this world. They won't be relegated to wiping snotty noses and poopy bums. Um, we're we're going to be important. And maybe, maybe later, maybe sometime down the road, um, you know, once I've made something of myself, then, then I'll think about marriage and, and children. But, but all this first. Um, boy, to the young ladies here this morning, I hate that this has been told. This is a lie. It breaks my heart. That over and over again, um, you're told that you should do something important with your life, something that matters as if going and sitting in an office for eight to ten hours is something that matters this great deal, that, that having a, a career is, is the most important thing in life, um, as if that's what would make you a significant person to go out there and do something, um, that you would abandon this, these precious gifts that God has given to women and, and, and honestly to say, I want to be more like a man. I, I want to I do the man thing and that will make me a better woman. It's not true. It's not the case. Don't believe it. Don't believe it. The world, the culture around us, the messages of uh, being screamed at you every time you watch a YouTube video or movie or music is, is this twisted lie from Satan himself. The, the, the things our, our world values are not the things that God values. Not the things that, that we should value. The things that the world says will make you happy and, and will make you fulfilled and are, are not the things that God has blessed. Not the things that God has given for your joy. Perfect example, um, Titus 2, 4, and 5. Like, Tell me if you, you hear this on, on popular television today. So train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind, and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God would not be reviled. God created men and women different. We have different roles to play. He made us with different Abilities and different needs, different gifts. God made Adam to give this benevolent protection, provision, self-sacrificial leadership. And God made Eve to be a helper fit for him. To support and, and respond to him in love, to, to produce and raise up children in the home. God says to be a wife and a mother is good. It's good. That's what God says will be a blessing and, and fullness and flourishing in that. Embrace that. There may be all kinds of other gifts and abilities that God has given you. I'm not saying that's not the case. And, and I'm not saying you can't pursue and, and enjoy those things. Um, Titus doesn't say that a woman could never leave the home. Look at the Proverbs 31 woman. She has all kinds of successful ventures going outside the home. But the home is still primary. The home is still her first 
priority, her most precious domain. She still does those things in, in respect and in support of, of her husband. Don't let the world steal that from you. Girls, hear me say, hear God say that it's okay. It's more than okay. It's, it's glorifying the Lord and, and beautiful to set your heart on becoming a wife and a mother. Don't let the world devalue that. Don't let Satan distract you and, and deceive you into thinking that, that you'll only be happy if you accomplish this checklist that the world has laid out. To have a husband and, and children was God's great blessing um, to the woman. And that's why as God begins to talk about the ripple effects of sin and he addresses the woman, um, he addresses the area of of blessing that he's given to her because where God blesses, sin brings pain. Where God blesses, sin brings pain. Sin would affect the woman right at the heart of her role, right in the middle of her blessing. There's now pain in childbearing. Now, I've never been through childbirth myself, but I've watched a couple times. Um, it seems to me that it's painful. Maybe some of you ladies want to corroborate that conjecture, um, but I don't think we need a lot more evidence. Um, it's a painful experience. That certainly is part of what the Lord is saying here. Labor and delivery will be uh, multiplied in its pain. And yet I think this is about far more than that, far more than just physical pain, the moment of childbirth. The word pain here is a broader word. Um, it's not just physical pain. It's used of sorrow, struggle, turmoil, heartache. The word childbearing, actually, there in that, in that first sentence, um, technically it means conception. Conception. And so uh, the King James translates it kind of a confusing way. It says, I will multiply your, your sorrow and your conception. What's he talking about? Sorrow in conception doesn't make a, a whole lot of sense. Well, what he's saying is because of sin, this whole process of children, from, from conception to graduation, the whole thing of, of bringing forth and bringing up children is fraught now with sorrow and struggle. It's hard. There's going to be pain involved. It's still good. It's not destroyed but, but sin has tainted it. Even as we talk about the blessings of motherhood and, and marriage and how God has given this as a gift to women, can't help but think of the ladies here who so deeply value that. I've sought after that and, and it hasn't happened. The Lord hasn't provided a husband yet or a husband was uh, there and now he's gone. Or maybe there's infertility. Some couples just aren't able to have kids, or there's miscarriage. We rarely know why, but some of these precious gifts from the Lord don't survive until birth. There's infant death and child death, or even the, the pain of a child who, who grows up and has a, a falling out and, and cuts off his family. Because of sin and death, the, the whole realm of having children, of bringing forth children, is going to be fraught with pain. It's broken. It's twisted and corrupted by sin. Because of this ripple effect of our rebellion against God, this most precious gift becomes mixed with pain. People look at the, the brokenness in our world 
They look at the, the suffering and the, and the death and the pain, and they ask, how could there be a God? Or how could God be good, right? You've heard this, you've seen this as you listen to people talk. They never stop to ask what actually caused the brokenness, right? They never pause to consider, maybe God is good. It's me that's the problem. Brokenness and pain in this world is is not because God isn't good. Pain in this world is because we are not good. God set forth what was good, and we abandoned it. We rebelled against it. Sin brings pain. Sometimes there's a one-to-one connection in that suffering. I make a sinful decision, and it hurts me because of that decision. And, and, And there's that direct connection. But sometimes our suffering is just part of the ripple effect. It's just part of the the reality that we live in a world that that is broken by sin. I want to be careful with that, especially as we talk about things so so sensitive and painful like like miscarriage or the death of a child. Um, That that is not, not, not God punishing you for some sin that you did or were unaware of. It's just the reality of this world that we live in, a world that is broken by sin. Because of sin, every, every part of life has pain. And so uh, the Lord doesn't stop there with childbirth. He moves on to the second part of Eve's role. Sin brings not only pain in childbearing, but pain in marriage. In the second half of verse 16 it says, Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. Now here we come to a sentence um, that is both difficult uh, in translation and controversial in application. So it's double the fun this morning. Um, let's start just looking at the words in front of us. First he says, your desire. says to the woman, your desire um, will be contrary to your husband. The word desire, there's a tricky one. Uh, it's a word that only shows up in, in two other places in all of the Bible. And uh, it's used again in, in chapter 4, which we'll look at in a minute, uh, and then in, in Song of Solomon, um, chapter 7, verse 10, I believe, um, which I think is less relevant. Um, next is the word contrary. Your desire will be contrary. And uh, the, the, the Hebrew word there is, is actually very flexible. It's, it's uh, um, to, for, against. Its, its meaning relies heavily on the, the meaning of desire. Right? What kind of desire it is is going to tell us how it relates to the husband. And so adding contrary to there, um, the ESV is, is trying to fill that in for us. It's, it's indicating that the, the translators of the ESV are saying, we don't think this is a good desire. This is a desire that's, that's contrary to her husband. The second part of the sentence tells us the husband will rule over her. The word rule there is pretty clear. It's a very strong word. It means to dominate, to, to control. So these are the, the translation questions we're facing. And different people have read this passage radically different ways. Some have read this and said, well, clearly, this is the way it ought to be. This is a, a model for how our world should work. 
The woman's desire should be for her husband and her husband only. Obviously, they would take that desire to be a positive thing, a good way. And the husband should rule over her. He is the king of his castle. Uh, He rules over his domain. The woman is subject to him. This is a statement of how husband and wife ought to operate. Other people have read this, the same sentence, and said, See, these supposed differences between men and women that you talk about, This idea that wives are to submit to their husbands and and their husbands are to lead, that's all because of sin. That's because of the fall. This whole thing of of husbands and wives submitting and and leading, we need to throw that out, put that off. That's because of, of sin. It's a confusing, controversial passage. I think as we look at the context, I think it becomes clear. First of all, it's called the curse for a reason. The passage that we're looking at is the damage done by sin. This is the damage done by sin. So so whatever this passage is teaching, it is not what we're supposed to be doing. These are not commands, right? I mean, just look back at the last sentence. The woman is not commanded um, to have pain in childbearing, right? It happens as an unwelcome consequence of of sin. Um, This is not a description of what's good and right. I actually stumbled on someone asking the question, um, does this first mean that it's wrong for a woman to take pain medication in childbirth? Um, uh, Any man that says that, I hope he would go and and pull thorns and thistles without wearing gloves. Um, That would even begin to start. No, no, this is the, the damage done by sin. We're right to want to be undoing this. On the other hand, This is certainly not the beginning or the source of the Bible's teaching on these complementary roles between men and women. Men and women were were created from the beginning equal but different. Equal but different. God created Adam, gave him the the rules of the garden. God charged Adam with the job of protecting and, and caring for the garden. After that, he created Eve. And he says explicitly that he made her to be a helper fit for him. That's what God said he made. Yes, with equal value and dignity and honor as the men, that's not in question. Both of them together are created in the image of God, but they have different roles. God shows that clearly, the, uh, creating Adam first and creating Eve out from Adam's rib in giving the, the commands to Adam and holding Adam primarily responsible. After the fall, he comes and calls Adam, where are you? So verse 16 is, is not where these different roles begin for men and women. God's created roles were good. It was a blessing, just like childbirth. This is where God's blessing is twisted by sin. God's blessing is twisted by sin. That's what's happening with with pain and childbearing. And and if we peek ahead, that's what's happening for for Adam, for the men. What was given as a blessing of of working and keeping the garden um, because of sin, uh, that will be sour. There will be pain and toil and frustration. Not many men see work as a, as a blessing, but as a curse, and that's not right. We'll get to that after Christmas. So men, hang on. But from the context here, we, we know that, that whatever desire and rule mean here, what we're talking about is how God's good gift of that marriage relationship, the, the complementary roles between husband and wife that God had put in place are twisted, are, are corrupted. 
So let's look closer at what this corruption is. The word desire here. Could be a positive desire. That's the way it's used in Song of Solomon. It's, it's Solomon's desire for his wife. Um, but we have to remember that's written thousands of years later and in a totally different context by a different author. What's really significant is the way that it's used in chapter 4, verse 7. Just, just one chapter later, it's the same author writing in the same context. And, and not only does he use the same odd word for desire, um, but it's followed by the same word for rule, and it's almost an identical sentence structure. And this is a, this is a gift um, for our hermeneutics. Like, this is just a, a gold nugget to have these two sentences side by side. So Genesis 4, 7, the Lord's talking to Cain. He had murdered his brother, and the Lord says to Cain, listen to this and see the, the similarities here. Sin is crouching at the door, its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. So the desire in chapter 4 is clearly a negative thing. This is a bad thing. Sin's desire is against you. Obviously, the desire of sin for Cain was, was, was not a godly desire. It was a, it was a desire to destroy him. A strong desire to, to have him, to own him, to control him, to manipulate and seduce him, to take advantage of him. Sin will use any means possible to achieve its own goals in Cain. And how should Cain respond? Now the context here is a little bit different. God is telling Cain what he should do with sin. He should rule over it. To use all of his strength to knock it down. Forcefully put sin in its place. Dominate sin. Crush it. Stifle it. So we take Genesis 4-7 and we use, um, kind of lay it over um, 3-16. What do we get? Well, because of sin, because of the, the corruption in us, because of sin, the desire of the woman will be for her husband. She will have a strong desire to have him, to own him, to control him, to manipulate and seduce him, to take advantage of him. And because of sin and his corruption of sin, how will he respond? He will seek to knock her down. He will use his strength to control her, to forcefully put her in her place, to, to dominate her with a, a heavy hand, to crush her and stifle her. And again, if we look at the context of the, the surrounding verses there in the curse, verse 15, the serpent sought to control and manipulate humanity, and the result is he will be crushed by the seed of the woman. 17 to 19, the man seeks to control and manipulate the soil, but verse 19 says the ground will win from the dust you were taken, from the dust you will return. Verse 16, in the middle, understood this way, has that same kind of natural reversal. Her desire will be to manipulate and control, and he will dominate and crush. Sin takes the blessing of marriage and adds strife, pain, struggle. It, it corrupts the way men and women interact, especially the context of marriage. This is the story of human history. Women seeking to control, manipulate men, using their strength to, to knock her down. 
But isn't this the, the story of our own personal history? Wives, do you see this operating in your own heart? It's a common joke, even in the church. Husbands are asked about a, an upcoming event or maybe invited to dinner, and what do we say? Well, let me check with the boss. It's a joke. Why is it funny? It's funny because it winks at an uncomfortable truth. It's funny because though men are perceived to be the boss and are supposed to be leading, there's this cultural understanding that they're actually all under the controlling thumb of their wife. We just don't want to admit it. Another common joke, I've only heard this one in the church, maybe it's broader than that, um, could be husband or wife, um, yeah, I may be the head, but the wife is the neck, and the neck turns the head. So I'm the head, I'm in, but she controls me. Can I just ask that we stop with these jokes? It's not funny. It's too close to the truth. It's making light of something that, that God says is a serious issue. We shouldn't joke about the, the corruption of sin and how it, how it disorders our relationships. Wife, is, is your desire to manipulate and control your husband? To direct him, to, to use him for your, for your own ends? And that might be a strong feminist vibe. He needs to support my career and my interests. He needs to bend to my will and do what I think. But sin's never quite that straightforward, is it? It might display itself in neediness or supposed weakness. Oh, you can't go do that. I need you here. Oh, don't, don't do that. I'm so frail. I'm so, I'm so delicate. I, I need you to attend to all of my needs. I depend on you so much. You need to do what I ask. Sin is slippery. It's deceitful. Its desire uh, is to manipulate, and, and we have to fight against that. We have to confess it, repent of it. It will take your marriage that, that God intends to be a great blessing and it will add turmoil. Wives ought to respect their husbands, submit to their husbands in everything as, as the church submits to Christ, support him, honor him. Husbands, you're in here too. How do you respond? When marriage isn't going the way you want it to go, when you feel like you've had enough, do you use your strength? Maybe physical, maybe emotional. Are you harsh, domineering? Do you, do you put her in her place? Do you belittle her or just claim your authority? I'm putting my foot down. God forbid, do you lay hands on her in anger? Or even stand up with your shoulders back and speak in that tone that says, watch yourself, woman. I'm bigger than you. That's sin. That is, there's absolutely no room for that, gentlemen. None. Let me say this, there are some things in your marriage that you might see hints of it and think, I need to work on that, and, and you can do that between you and your wife, and there's a, a slow sanctification process there as we watch these things in our hearts. But gentlemen, if you've gotten to the point of laying hands on your wife in anger, you, you've passed that line. That is no longer something that you and your wife can slowly work through. Sin is crouching at your door. It will destroy you. It will destroy your marriage and your family. You need help and you need it now. 
The Lord absolutely can redeem and sanctify and restore and reconcile. But I just want to say, if there's, there's any man here who's, who's crossed that line, who's struggling with that, and you've, in anger, laid hands on your wife, um, it's time to get another man involved. That's not something you want to work through between you and your wife. That's something you need accountability uh, and support, and we want to walk with you and, and, and see that changed. Um, come talk to myself, Kevin Chester, one of our elders, is, is here this morning, or your small group leader. Um, you, you need to rat yourself out on that one immediately. Do it today. Um, sin will destroy your marriage. So men are, are to lead in marriage. But he will rule over you is the opposite of what that leadership should look like, gentlemen. It's not a leadership of, of strength and force. Uh, Ephesians 5.25 says, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Think about that. My leading that way, loving her and giving myself up for her. That's the, that's the authority you have. Man, are you self-sacrificially leading your home? When's the last time you changed a diaper? When's the last time you washed the dishes? Shh, wives, wives just, just wait. Let them do it. We struggle with this, right? That's, that's her job. That's her burden. That's not my job. Yes, it is. Her burden is your burden. Isn't that exactly how Christ loved the church? He came to us and saw a burden that was not his own, and he put it on himself. Lead your family by washing your wife's feet, by caring for your wife, picking up her burden, giving yourself up for her. And if you don't know how to do that well, ask her. She's got the answer. Honey, how can I carry your burden today? How can I serve you today? So this is the, the ripple effect out from that one rebellious act in the garden. Sin and death entered into the world. Sin and death bring this sorrow and suffering. There's, there's pain now in childbearing. There's pain now in marriage. But you know the story doesn't end there. It never ends there. Because of our sin, there's pain in childbearing and there's pain in marriage, but there's also peace in Christ. There's peace in Christ. It's undeniable the, the brokenness of sin, the, the ripple effect of this rebellion into our world, it affects everything. Our sin against God that, that started with Adam and Eve and continues down through us, um, it makes us God's enemies. It puts us in the line of fire of his righteous wrath, and it just brings corruption and disintegration into every part of life. Listen, the, the world is falling apart because of sin. It's falling apart. Every brokenness and problem in this world, from, from, from heartaches to, to hurricanes, and, and, and it's all the world breaking down because sin has entered, and we've offset this perfect ecosystem that God created. But even that disintegration, even this pain and brokenness that, that infests every part of life is not without uh, a purpose in the plan of God. Amazing. The brokenness caused by sin uh, is God's megaphone to the world. 
Every person will eventually come to that point in their lives, probably multiple times, of saying, what's wrong with this world? Like just throwing your hands up in, in despair and saying, why is this so broken? Why is this so painful, so messy, so twisted and wretched and hard? This life stinks. And God intends for us to ask that question. His purpose and his design through suffering is that we would be confronted with that stark reality of our broken world and that in the stark reality we would be confronted by the, by the sinfulness of sin, by how bad this really is. Sin is so much worse than you think it is. Rebellion against the almighty God is not a small thing. Every heartbreaking situation, every infertile couple, every miscarried baby, every manipulated husband, every abused wife, every broken marriage, it is, it is the ripple effect outward that should draw our eyes back to the center to see how our sin, the sin of Adam and Eve eating from that tree and my sin of rebelling against God just brings pain, brings Suffering brings brokenness into our world. And the ugliness of sin should cause us to see the beauty of the Savior. Once the, the ripples start across that glassy, smooth lake, you, you really can't stop them, right? Like you can't reach in with your hands and grab those waves and, and smooth the lake out. You can't do it. But God can. God can. God in his infinite wisdom and overflowing mercy um, can work through this brokenness and bring about salvation. He can restore peace in the midst of the chaos. Notice even here in, in Genesis, there will be pain in childbearing and the, the death and suffering in the process of, of bringing life. And yet, just peek back a little bit, Genesis 3.15 it would be through that process of childbearing that eventually a child would be born. It's not December yet, but I can't resist. A child born to a virgin in the manger, the birth we celebrate at Christmas. God himself in human form, and she would call his name Jesus, and the, the pain of that mother would be multiplied as she would look on her son as he hung on the cross. And he would die not for his sins, but for our sins. And anyone who would come to him in repentance and faith might be forgiven, restored, made new. Once we, we have this peace in Christ, our lives then can point others to that peace in Christ. We still live in a, in a world that's corrupted and, and broken by sin. Christians still face pain in childbearing. Christians still face pain and struggle in marriage. But how we face that pain becomes part of God's stilling the waters, part of God's megaphone pointing back to Christ. Infertility is hard. Miscarriage is hard. Book of Isaiah, the Lord addresses the eunuchs, those who are, who are not able to have children. And listen to what he says. Isaiah 56, 4 to 5. 
Thus says the Lord to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbath, who choose the things that please me and hold fast my covenant. I will give in my house and within my walls a monument and a name better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. God comes to the, to the childless and he says, there will be a reward in eternity better than sons and daughters. That's hard to say. It's hard to fathom for those of you who so longly, long for children. But God is saying, and, and I can't doubt him, he's saying there is something better. There will be comfort. If you're faithful to him, even through that suffering, there's a reward that is even better than what is broken in this world. Paul says it this way, 2 Corinthians 4, 17 and 18. For this light and momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. That's our hope. God has an eternal reward. He has a comfort and grace that will more than compensate for even the most painful earthly loss. He calms those turbulent waters. He gives us a hope in the midst of the storm. And what happens when that water is calmed in our hearts? Well, the reflection comes back. As people from the outside look in on our lives, Calmed by the grace of God, they see the reflection of the goodness of God. That same is true within marriage. We all come into marriage with baggage and sin, and none of us is perfect, and we we grind against each other and sanctify each other. And as we live in the peace of Christ, seeking to honor your husbands and love your wives in repentance and sanctification, Paul tells us, Ephesians 5, that our marriages then become a reflection of Christ in the church. This this living picture of the gospel, godly marriages are a reflection of the gospel. It's meant to be that way. We became part of God's plan to show the the contrast between the, the pain of sin and the peace of Christ. And not only that, happening in us, but it's all by the grace of God. It's all by the grace of God. We we trust in Him. We fix our eyes on Him as He transforms us. We we never get there perfectly, not by any means, but it all comes back to Christ and His work. There's so much brokenness and pain in this world because of sin in general and because of our own sin in particular. Christ alone is our hope. Christ alone is our peace. So I want to ask the worship team to come. Um, We're going to close this morning celebrating communion together, pointing our own hearts back again to his sacrifice on the cross, his death in our place, and then forward to the day that he returns, the day we know is coming and coming soon, the hope we have of eternity in him when every tear will be wiped away, every pain and suffering undone. As always, this is for those who have repented of their sin and are entrusting in Christ. So those who, again, are by no means perfect, but who come walking in humble repentance before the Lord.
If that's not you this morning, we ask you just let the elements go by. Just, just observe and, and consider. Consider your sin before the Lord, your need for a Savior. Um, if you come this morning uh, as an imperfect, repentant sinner, um, looking to the cross, then, then we celebrate together. And in this, um, we rejoice. And in this, uh, we have hope. Um, so would you stand? The elements will be handed out. Just hang on to them. You'll find a, two cups with the bread in the bottom, juice in the top, and uh, we'll partake together in a moment. Um, let's stand and worship together.